Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Talk Recorded live. Hey, this is Out of Darkness Into the Light and... Uh... We're going to have a couple friends of Connie that she's been uh, meeting with uh, on a semi-regular basis on Sundays and uh, having a little Bible study in kind of a house church setting. So the name is James and Erica. So. Hello. This is uh, Erica and James. We're right here. I was telling Erica that maybe I'm just impatient, but... TalkShoe was loading a little slower than the other website put them on today, so I was like, oh boy, not again. Yeah. So you guys are all settled in now, or what? Mostly so. Um, we've got everything unpacked pretty much, and we're in the midst of some organizing things and getting the pictures and stuff hung. Uh-huh. Your mind settling down too, you know. Yeah. I've got the opposite situation over here, but I don't I don't know when I'm gonna leave. So Oh, okay. Living in this house for twenty years, it's all up in the air now. Oh. All right. Yeah, we've got some friends that uh well our friend William he's helping get his grandparents stuff moved out of their old house. Uh-huh. And I forget how long they've been in that house, but I think they said they needed like an entire I don't know, a few weeks for the kitchen. Because it's just oh, years yeah. upon years of I think. Yeah, and then when they started getting in the age, I think he was saying they started forgetting what stuff they had, so they just started getting even more. Yeah, you, you know, you guys should probably, uh, just because of the culture we live in, everything's so dark out there, you know, it's just, you, you guys should probably think about um, doing some kind of cleansing on that house. We kind of think it should be kind of like uh, like on two different levels, you know. Um, both spiritual and energetic, but obviously the spiritual is more important. Right. And, and there's kind of an overlap, too, because um, our experience has been that these demons are affected to some degree. You don't, you don't want to push this too much by, you know, what we would call just kind of simplify, you know, like positive energy. Like uh, Connie, I've never done this, but she, um, her and Lisa burned this, you know, burned sage. You know, and that, that sounds pretty spooky for most Christians, but um, it actually puts out uh, negative ions, and those are the good, the good ions. And uh, apparently, demons don't like them. You know, 
yeah, that's been something that I keep looking up and all that and, like, trying to find, like, kind of, you know, I don't know, I guess, you know, a rational mind sort of empirical description of why that is and all that. But at any rate, um, Eric and I have done it a few times, actually, um, both at the old place and here. One of the first things we did when we moved in, actually. Yeah, that was one of the first things we did because we're like, all right, let's get this place off to a good start. I mean, you can definitely tell a difference in everything. Uh-huh. Did you actually look that up online, uh, the negative ions and the sage? Um, Connie told us about the sage and that it's negative ions and all that. Um, um, when I asked her why that is about the demons and stuff, I forget if she, like, didn't know the specifics, like, I guess the, quote, science of it or whatnot, but... Uh-huh looking up some stuff, and I eventually found some website that I emailed to her. It was like Llewellyn or something like that. I'm going to go onto my email and see if I can pull up that email code. It was actually pretty interesting. It was the first time that I found a website that was talking about, like, energy imprints, you know, like ghosts just being, you know, the imprints from some major event or whatnot and all that. Yeah, energetic imprints. Yeah. A lot of Christians are not familiar with that. See, there's a type There's a type of ghostly phenomena that's uh, easily identifiable as that because it's, it's repetitive. A classic example would be going into a, a monastery or something like that that's, you know, from the medieval era. And then... Um, You'll see these, uh, it's not like, you know, what they see over in Gettysburg or something like that. You'll see mass ghosts and stuff like that. But you'll see these um, these monks kind of moving down the aisle, but their legs are cut off. And that's because, um, you know, they changed the, 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 the flooring recently, they, um, you know, the height on it, you know what I mean? But it just stays the same. It just repeats over and over again. The theory is that any time you have a strong emotional event, it leaves an energetic imprint in the environment. And uh, New Agers like to say the energy doesn't go anywhere, you know. And uh, nobody can prove that it does dissipate, you know. But I, I think it stays around, you know. Right, yeah. The, um, the website is called Llewellyn. Um, and, uh, it's got... How do you spell that? It's double L, E, W, E, double L, Y, N, uh-huh. uh, dot com, and then it's their journal link, and they're talking about, um, portal hauntings, you know, like an actual tear or gateway, that sort of thing. Um, they're like saying that, they, um, yeah, it's basically saying it's a portal or tear or gateway, whatever you want to call it, in the environment that allows spirits and negative entities to enter our world. Because of this, inhabitants of these locations typically do not experience the same spirit or activity on a regular basis. Um, so it's distinguishing it between, you know, like seeing the same thing over and over and over again. 
saying modern examples include cities like Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Um, Manresa Castle and Fort Townsend. Oh, that's up my way. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Then it's got negative entities and it's Oh, I think this is where it was talking about, like non-human spirits, elementals, or thought forms. I think the thought form part was the, yeah, residual haunting. It's recorded into the environment, essentially. Hey, just a second, James. Uh, Connie buzzed me. I'll see more. Oh, okay. I'm out of milk, so it slows me down a lot. <laughs> yeah, she had problems getting from there. See what I said? Yeah, let's see. Oh, I'm in the chat thing for talk shoes, so I'll just post the link there. Oh yeah, that's that's good to be in the chat. <laughs> yeah, there we go. You know, it's really amazing how, uh, geez, I, you know, I can't actually think of one single Christian site, because I'm assuming that's not a Christian site that talks about these kind of issues. Yeah, it's very new agey. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I'm familiar with that, uh, the word anyway, um, that word gets thrown around. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the whole thing about uh, demons, um uh, being affected by uh, you know, what we'll call like positive energy. I, I have not researched this. See, I a lot of things that I believe, I just think them out in my head. You don't have to get online. It's good to do that, okay? Because that's what I was doing for years before um, I got online in 1999, and I wasn't basing anything when I was on the Internet. And so I actually thought this out that... Um, there's no question that demons are attracted to to negative energy or anything negative. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's actual proof for this because you have, um, you know, negatively energized objects. And we've experienced that ourselves because sometimes uh, we have to get rid of these objects before an exorcism can proceed. But there's a lot of examples of that. I mean, pretty much... Everybody believes in this kind of thing, you know, even Christians, you know, because they think that there's evil objects, you know, that demons are attracted to. Well, if that's true, um, then we're just talking about the opposite. So, so that means if you have something positive, a positive environment, um, they would simply not like it, you know. Uh, they might not want, like to hang around there. It doesn't mean you're going to defeat them. You see, you got, you know, Sherry Shriner out there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but it has to do with the subject of Orgone, too. And she's uh, uh, possibly, uh, probably sincere, but she's um, describing the whole subject by trying to say that you can defeat the reptilian beings uh, with with orgone. And then, uh, to make it even worse, she's got this orgone uh, blaster, which is a a glorified squirt gun. You're going to (laughs) spray... Energized water, you know, and 
I think she says that you can defeat demons with this, too. But, um, I mean, that's completely ridiculous, you know. But what I'm saying is that, you know, that's the other extreme. I'm saying that, you know, this energy does have an effect on them. You're not going to defeat them, but they just don't like it, you know. So it would tend to weaken them to some degree or, you know. Right, yeah. I can think twice, at least. Um, drain of energy a little bit over time. It's going to have some effect. That's the main thing we're trying to say here. So, yeah. <clears throat> right, yeah. Instead of no effect, like a lot of people would say, oh, it's not going to do anything, you know. But Actually, any kind of being is going to be affected to some degree by their environment. It's It's really a question of, you know, how much, is it significant? That, that's the real issue. Mm. So, <clears throat> but yeah, I basically believe in what they're saying there on that site. <clears throat> it's funny, you know, if you throw around the word demon to uh, New Agers, they'll really react to it. But if you say negative entity, they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> that's funny how that kind of thing works out. Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. People out there are like, you know, they take the time and they're like, using all the different terms that anybody and everybody could possibly use for it. And it's like, whatever word you want to ascribe to it, you know, everyone has some sort of, you know, uh, experience with this, you know, whether it's archons or jinn or demons or whatever. Yeah. Well, we talk about that quite a bit on here, about how uh, people react to, uh, you know, to words. Um but, you know, New Agers do it, too. Now, they're going to react to the word hell or Satan, you know. Well, if you just say negative entity um, or a cosmic trickster, they won't have a big problem with that. <laughs> they don't like the word hell, though. That's the truth. <clears throat> mm. Anyway, you there, Connie? Oh, she's got a bunch of activity in the background. So. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. So I guess uh, they're settling down in their moving project there. So they said earlier. What are you talking about? What's that? What are you talking about? I was talking about the James and Erica. I said they're they're settling down there. I talked about the mind settling down. You know, so you start to focus a little bit. You move. You know, mm-hmm. it takes a while. Why don't you, uh, I'm going to put the phone on mute here for a little bit, why don't you interact with him? Are you free? Are you free or are you busy in the background? Not really. Um, i got to prepare for this week's lessons for school. Oh, okay. That's all. Well, I can put it off. I was just going to turn the faucet on so I, I mute that when I do that. <laughs> we have a lot of problems with background noise and talks to. <clears throat> the more cell phones you get on there, you know, the worse it is. <clears throat> You can probably tell by listening to some of our shows. I mean, some of them are really noisy. Did Lisa ever make it on? Yeah, I'm Lisa? here. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, I've been here. Yeah, I, I called her and told her to come on. All right. She was getting ready to call me anyway. I'm going <laughs> to tell Hector that the uh, room is open. I think Hector was supposed to be on too, so I guess I'll come yeah. on a little bit later. Yeah, I'm going to
Yeah, I've been looking into the Septuagint a lot uh, lately, uh, Dan. I'm sorry? I've been looking into the Septuagint a lot lately. That's um, I'm trying to figure out what is the best contemporary translation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it is uh, very tricky. Um, we were talking about, you know, the uh, you like your study Bibles and all that and, um, you know, English Standard and I think the New American Standard and I mentioned there's the uh, Lexham. I'll spell that on the chat just for everyone. Okay. Um, Lexham English Bible. It's a pretty recent one, but what's hmm. kind of interesting about it is that um, it, it reads similar to the ESV, as far as I can tell, and it actually renders the divine name and other terms ascribed to God. So it's kind of interesting. It gives you a better perspective, especially I've been reading a lot of the, um, I guess, the divine counsel sort of passages lately, mm -hmm. and with that translation there, it's really kind of easy to see what they're talking about. What's the going whole. on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when it's actually using the terms instead of disguising it with like, I don't know, sons of Israel or something instead of like yeah. <laughs> sons of God and all that. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense here. Yeah, you know, now, as far as that passage goes, see, the Septuagint agrees with the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. And as far as I know, the well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it would agree with the uh, uh, Samaritan Pentateuch, which has got lots of corruption problems. But I'm assuming that, that, that that's from Logos, Logos Software, right? <clears throat> that translation? Yeah, that's what it is. They're, I'm sure they're basing it on the Masoretic text. Pretty much okay. everybody does. So anyway, when you look into these passages... Um, I mean, that's the first one you mentioned, you see. And there's a disagreement between the, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint right away. And uh, so let me know if you see these differences, um, you know, with the Septuagint. Because I think they're really interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You should always compare it uh, in, in the Old Testament and see what. Because I'm, I'm you, if you look at like Isaiah 53, it's like radically different. Um, you know, this is what we base the penal substitutionary um, view of the atonement on. Largely Isaiah 53. You know that God's wrath had to be appeased, and um, I held that view for many years. As, as um, even though Augustine didn't hold to it, you know. It came from John Calvin. But uh, I rejected it uh, a while back and went to the older view that the um, church fathers held to, which is the ransom theory, although I think there's there's some truth in some of the other political theories too, but there's a lot of theories on the atonement. And the Bible is, the Bible is not really clear on that subject. That's why the church fathers... They didn't really focus on that a lot. It's like the Protestant reformers started to put a lot of focus on the atonement. And, you know, that was quite a bit later. So, um, but anyway, I mean, um, I moved away from it, but I've been studying it lately, and it's just, it's amazing um, the effect this has had on Christian, you know, Western Christianity, you know. 
um, the way that we perceive God, of an angry God. But anyway, the, the, the readings in the Septuagint are just like totally different. And it's just like, what in the heck? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so people in the Western church, they just assume that the, the Septuagint is wrong. You know, because you have a consistent uh, difference in, in when it, all these different numbers that they throw around in Scripture. It's, it's, it's pretty shocking, actually. So most people just have kind of a comfortable faith. They just kind of plug themselves in and then believe what they're told. The problem is, is that um, I have to say there's a pretty radical difference between Western Christianity and this, this is remarkable because we're talking about what? Um, you know, Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Roman Catholicism, at least back, you know, 500 years ago, versus the Eastern Church. Because um, the Protestants agree with the Catholics on a lot of things, and the Eastern Church disagrees. Now, in the Eastern Church, they actually believe that the penal substitution theory is a heresy. What do you think about that? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's interesting. And, of course, you know, um, they disagree with justification, too. I, I believe that they're absolutely wrong about that. And that's just, you know, that's why we talk about the diaspora so much, this latter stage of the diaspora, where whoever Israel is, they haven't been restored yet. You know what I mean? And so it's affecting all of us because um, the truth it's really scattered around, you know. That's why you can't plug into any kind of group or belief system and just um, and then start defending it, because that's what a lot of people do, you know. Yeah. Because they all have errors, let me tell you. They all have errors. And, uh, you know, God is the one that sovereignly distributes truth, and he doesn't give it to one group. I mean, this is just basic common sense, but people don't think this way. They seem to think that I found the group and it's, we have the truth. And you guys are in error, and uh, <laughs> we need to refute you. <laughs> yep. And you have to you have to do that too. You know, it's just all about attitude and balance and stuff like that. And then um, you have this big issue about lost knowledge from the distant past, which none of these groups are addressing. And uh, because there's a different attitude in the Western Church and the Eastern Church, Western Church, they pretty much think they've got it all figured out. Where the um, the Eastern Church is more thinking along the lines of, um, you know, Judaism. And there's different groups, obviously, but they're more unsure uh, about certain things, especially eschatology. You know, the Eastern Church is not this definitive. It's like, well, it's kind of a wait and see, you know. <laughs> so. And people actually say they're all millennial. They're so soft-spoken about it, it's hard to even tell sometimes. Mm. Some people say they are, some people say they're not, you know. And, you know, like the Orthodox Jews, I mean, some of them, they say that Elijah has to come back and explain the finer points of the Torah before Messiah appears, then you have other Jews, a minority actually think the Messiah is Elijah, you know. But in in the Eastern mentality, they don't have this dogmatic mindset, you know, we've got it all figured out, because that's what the Inquisition was based on. We have absolute truth, you violated it, therefore we're going to punish you, you know. 
Because you didn't have that in the Eastern Church, you know. You had a lot more tolerance. And people need to understand that um, they do not get exposed to Eastern thinking. I'm talking about Eastern Christianity. It's a different mindset. And uh, Western Christianity is very intolerant. I would say to the point of having a cultic mindset. Um, that's a huge subject which we're going to be talking about more and more. Because if you've got a whole series of important questions down through the history of the church that are absolutely vital to ask about Christianity, but they never get asked. And that's evidence of the cultic mindset. And then you have to explain that. How do we get into this myth? And my answer is God. My answer for everything. You know, why this? Why that? God? God? <laughs> Always God. <laughs> so then it leads to the question, why did God do this? <laughs> However you think this problem arised, you know, I mean, even if you don't think that God caused it, it's still, you know, why did God allow this? But if you don't think he caused it, then you tend to not think about it so much because you don't think that God is, is involved as much, you know, so you just think that, that this just happened because man um, didn't do the right thing, you know. <clears throat> just like the way Pentecostals believe that the reason that the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, was the secondary work of grace was lost, virtually lost for all those centuries, is because man didn't do what he was supposed to do. But fortunately, the Pentecostals restored that lost doctrine for us, so we can all be thankful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that you uh, mentioned the cult thing. Um, Erica was just watching, and I was kind of listening to it um, from the background, this, uh, I guess, little mini documentary on this guy, this filmmaker, I guess, who decided to form his own uh, kind of cult. He made himself, you know all like a guru, a yoga kind of guru kind of guy, and he just got all these followers and everything, and it's like, you know, I he approached it. What was his name? Um, Kalume? No, the, the name he used for himself was Kumare. Kumare, that's what it is. That's the, that's the title of the documentary. Oh, yeah. His real name was... Victor... Vikram, Vic, Vic, I believe it was. He's, his family was from India. He's first generation... Yeah. yeah, I just uh, posted it. It's called Kumare, and it's actually on Netflix. Um, I think it's like maybe an hour or something like that. But he basically formed this, I wouldn't call it necessarily a cult, but he could have made it into one, definitely. And, you know, everyone was looking up to him for all this insight and everything, and it's like, you know, just seeing how easy it was to make people believe that they were in this, you know, enlightened kind of group. And he actually found it hard to finally explain it to them that, you know, he actually wasn't a guru in the sense that they thought he was and all this sort of stuff. And, you know. He was dropping hands left and right and no one called him on it. Yeah, he kept, uh, as time progressed, he was leaving more and more hints, you know, like, I am an illusion, blah, blah, blah. I'm not the guru you Yeah, so it was kind of interesting, and um, it was kind of surprising to me, actually, that um, once he finally did reveal what was going on and all that, um, which he did in a very soft kind of way, it wasn't a jarring revelation of, 
any sort. I mean, he did it very gently. But actually, the majority, vast majority of his so-called students, um, you know, they kept in contact with them, and they were still friends and everything, and, you know, they were approaching it from a little bit different of a perspective and all that, but it was really surprising to me. Hmm. Well, this is interesting. This is actually a, a film. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, a documentary. It's about an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. Now, you got to wonder if this was some kind of a social engineering experiment, you know. I'm always suspicious, you know. <laughs> yeah, I may well have been. Um, he did have two friends who were kind of in on it. One of them um, was kind of serving as his... And I think another contact that would use the term fixer, like helping book appointments and getting him kind of established in the area. And then the other one was like the first devotee to kind of help uh, uh-huh. group people. Yeah, the break-the-ice kind of person, I guess. Yeah, but it, it was really interesting. Um, lots of kind of universalism sort of thing as far as the stuff that they actually talked about. But oh, what do you mean by universalism? Oh, you know, you'll each each one of you will find your own truth, that sort of, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, huh. so, yeah, that was... Look- well, that actually has some truth to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have the doctrine of what's called pluralism, that um, that God can be found through any religion. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure uh, they really talked about God at all. Actually, I don't think he was even mentioned or anything. Huh. Not really. Yeah. I, it, it really came across as like a, I don't know, an empowerment kind of message, you know, find your own confidence, that sort of thing. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that was one of the things he kind of wanted to espouse, like all these other gurus, they always kind of make people depend on them. Like, the only way you can get any kind of enlightenment is through me. And he was like trying to and teach them to think for themselves in a way, like, realize that they didn't necessarily need to have him. Mm-hmm. So I thought part of the reason why they were kind of able to still keep in contact with him afterwards because he had kind of tried to wean them off of him in a sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. His ultimate message was essentially, like, be your own guru sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so... Well, I think one of the major perversions of uh, the New Age movement, uh, because they've actually uh, perverted, you know, Eastern thought, is that uh, the lack of a, a personal deity. I mean, there's that's probably the main opinion out there, but there's all kinds of people who believe in quote-unquote New Age belief system, you know. But um, unless you want to focus on Buddhism, I mean, they didn't believe that. Um, in Eastern religions in the past, the, the, the Buddhist deity is kind of vague, but um, they've got a complex hierarchy of beings, that's for sure, underneath who's ever at the top. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's funny because in, in the Eastern traditions, um, any kind of tradition at all, I mean, not, we're not talking about necessarily from, you know, the far east, but anywhere in the east, um, they're real big on, uh, you know, the enlightened teacher, Um 
because that's actually what discipleship has to do from an ancient oriental perspective, mm-hmm. is that ideally, um, you know, you find an enlightened master, somebody who's um, educated themselves over pretty much decades. It's going to be an elder person. I mean, Jesus was younger because he, he was able to circumvent that because the Father was communicating all kinds of information to him, you know. That's why he was so unusual. Because... Um, he was really too young to be an authoritative rabbi. But uh, anyway, what you do is you actually, you know, live and sleep and eat with this person day after day, ideally. That's, that's the ideal model. And uh, that model is very, very scary for the Western mind, you know, the Western Christian. Because we start immediately start thinking when we have authoritative leader, we immediately start thinking, you know, well, we actually been programmed to think cult leader. You know what I mean? Um, once you observe a group of people um, thinking that this person is, has authority, we start to get highly suspicious, you know. But a lot of that has to do with um, programming from social engineering from uh, actually the late 60s because people back in the 1950s, they didn't have all these residual fears about cults and cult leaders. So you have to wonder, you know, where they get these kind of things. Well, they got it from the media. Some captains and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He's like introduce those fears. Yeah. We actually have a podcast that's just about ready to go. It's an older one. It's called Guru in a Podcast. (laughs) Okay. People get a kick out of that. Uh, Sometimes people call me Guru Dave, but uh, it's all just uh, tongue in cheek, you know. I'm just giving a lot of advice on there. Um when I met a couple young guys for the first time, so they asked me a lot of questions, you know. A lot of it was like alternative health stuff, and I was just going, whoa, I didn't know I knew all this stuff, you know, because nobody ever asked, you know. So <clears throat> I was just out walking around. I was out walking around for like four hours. That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of a fun one. But, yeah, I mean, we get, we kind of get, get spooked by uh, that kind of thing. But actually... That's the ideal um, methodology. Because, see, what we have today in this politically correct Christian world, because that's what it is, is that we, we don't really, uh, once, you know, except for the pastor, okay? It's like no one has any authority, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we have these Bible studies at our churches, we give them these circles, and then everyone gives their opinion, you know, because uh, we all have to share and we're all equal. Nobody's better than somebody else. I don't mean in absolute sense, you know. But, um, but see, that kind of structure, it, it leaves you confused um, because you're hearing all these opinions and you're not sure which one is, you know, um, valid, especially if you're a younger believer. So you, you could actually go away more confused or more apathetic because you, you're being exposed to a multiplicity of opinions. You know, it's different, you know, if you're a more mature believer. If you're more of a true believer, you might just get bored in that environment and stop going, you know. But that's 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 the teaching method that we feel we're increasingly growing uh, comfortable with. See, and that, that's a bad trend. And so we've gotten so confused in our minds that um, it's like, well, what else are we supposed to do? Listen to some authoritative teacher? You see? It's like we got some kind of residual fear about that. Because we all know who the authoritative teacher is. There's a 
there's all kinds of opinions about who's right and who's wrong. You know, I like this guy and I don't like that guy, but you like him. But I think, you know, I think he's got bad teaching, you know. But as I like to say around here, um, you know, we, I don't, in my opinion, we don't have a single authoritative teacher beyond the first century. And that's important because we didn't actually have the authority um, to, you know, uh, I'm not against uh, church councils. I mean, um, but the conclusions of them are not authoritative because you'd have to have an inspired prophet or apostle, you know. But we treat them as if they were, you see. And that's our religion, you know, because um, in other expressions of Christianity, they have a different canon. And uh, and we just, you know, just like with the Septuagint, we say, well, they're wrong. But we don't investigate. I mean, people don't investigate the Septuagint. They don't investigate the Eastern Church. Mm-hmm. They just assume that, you know, we're right, they're wrong. Well, see, that, again, is that cultic mindset that I talked about. Yeah. And one of the big problems, too, in Christianity, and this is really bad in Western Christianity, because there's an emphasis in, uh, on, in Eastern uh, religions, whether Christian or otherwise, in dialogue. And you get into a Christian church, it's, it, it has a lot of commonalities with, um, you know, a, a, a college room. Uh, setting with professor in classroom. Um, you just start throwing a few questions around, and you'll see that that is not designed for for asking questions. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is notorious for this. There's just like a lot of people that left Christianity because they asked a priest uh, a basic question, and he just blew them off. You know, just believe it by faith. You know. Yeah, my because parents and that was a Lutheran church, even. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's 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 serious problems with Western Christianity. Um, it's not being properly critiqued by people within Western Christianity. That's one of the problems: is that Christianity doesn't properly critique itself, and uh, different groups within Christianity don't properly. Critique critique themselves, you know. They tend to look outside and uh, critique other groups. We need to focus more on ourselves. And I think if we did, we'd realize that we're corrupt, you know. And so, because the emphasis traditionally has been, um, I'd say just from the 19th century, on evangelization, you know. But I think the church is so uh, dysfunctional that we actually need to, um, not when you fast the body, you know, you focus on uh, resting the body so you can uh, purge the body and then kind of build a new foundation and kind of go go from there, you know. You'll have right. a clarity of mind and all kinds of other wonderful things will happen. But we need to focus on um, <clears throat> actually truth is what we need to focus on because um, people talk a lot about, you know, revival and uh, because, you know, we need revival in some sense, but you're not going to have revival without reform, and you can't have reform without truth, but you don't see churches talking about a restoration of truth, which is remarkable, remarkable, because uh, the American churches will talk more about love, which is obviously important, okay, but they don't have an emphasis on knowledge and truth. I mean, this is like self-evident. You just point it out. I go, yeah, that's true, you know. But see, that's the foundation for everything because um, 
knowledge is, or excuse me, love is actually dependent upon upon love, you know, uh, philosophically, you know, because... Um, Can you say that one again? Um, it broke up a little bit. What's dependent on what? Uh, ask me that again. Oh, um, love is actually dependent upon knowledge. Okay. Because um, you can't love unless you have a uh, a discernible object. It's just like with faith. Faith has to have an object, and so that involves knowledge of something. You know what I mean? Okay. But um, I don't need to get into all that. But um, you can see there's a there's a disemphasis uh, in modern Christianity on knowledge and truth. That's actually the foundation for everything. You know. So we're not going to have um, revival until we have a significant restoration of truth. That's my opinion. And so it's pretty important. And it's not happening because people are not even focusing on that that problem right now, unfortunately. Yeah, you kind of get that attitude of, you know... um, I guess people are trying to lead others to Christ, and of course that's a very good thing to do. But you know, those people have questions, and it's like, well, those questions can be answered later. You need to believe this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or a lot of times what will happen is you know all sorts of stuff gets shoved into the little categories of you know, well, this isn't essential truth, you know, you need to believe these things and then the other things we can get to later, um, or let's find you a, a doctrinal creed that you can look at and memorize and that's what we believe, all that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a good example of what I was talking about is uh, the emphasis uh, in the American church on uh, bringing about societal change through the political system, Okay. Uh, you know, the, Jesus said that you are the light of the world, and uh, any time that the light shines, it's going to have an effect on the environment. You know what I mean? He also said you are the salt of the earth. Right. But see, if, if, the, if the light is weak or if the salt is bad, it's not going to affect the environment, okay? And so, um, you know, we need to focus on repairing ourselves before we can change the world, because it's not—it's not working. I mean, um, people talk about a post-Christian culture. I don't think it ever was Christian, but there's no biblical definition of a Christian state anyway. So I mean, you know, it'd be all theoretical. But um, obviously, I mean, the people have a uh, a non-Christian mindset uh, or secular mindset in our culture today, and so. Um, they're not listening to us. They think that Christianity is archaic and something that's just going to pass away in the by and by eventually. It's not really culturally relevant anymore. And you know, there's some truth in that. They just don't realize um, it's really the people that's important. Um, what, see, actually what happened is that um, at one time there was a God-ordained theocracy, and then God judged it and destroyed it, and uh, modern Christians need to, you know, Jews mourn that event, destruction of the temple, you know. Uh, Christians don't. They don't realize the significance of what happened. But see, at one time, God's people actually had a protective sheepfold, 
that they could go to. You know, and they gradually lost it because of disobedience. We don't have a sheepfold. We don't have a place to go to uh, for protection. Now, people say, well, we have the church, you know. But when they talk about the church, they're talking about an institutional structure. And you won't find that institutional structure anywhere in Scripture. It's just simply not there. Um, that's all based on the premise that God approved uh, or commanded first building a synagogue and secondly, a, secondarily a church building. I'm not trying to say it's sinful to do it. I'm just saying that, you know, it's not something that's even in the Bible, you know. Uh, ancient uh, practice and worship was based around uh, the home. And that's why it doesn't uh, explicitly state that in Scripture so much. You know, this is, needs to be your practice because that's what everybody did, you know. And uh, meeting in a synagogue in the first century and later in, in house churches, after things began to deteriorate, because originally Christianity was a, uh, a sect of Judaism, um, that was all secondary, supplementary. Everybody knew that it was all based around the patriarch and the home. So even completely lost that. But um, here's what's disturbing. I have yet to hear anybody talk about this, not, not one person, that worship is centered around the home, not somewhere else, because Christianity is based around, you know, attending a church, and submitting to a pastor, things like that. It's not anywhere in the Bible. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah I think that you should uh, mention that. Um, I'm kind of discussing that a little bit with uh, my dad my, right now. Um, I mean, Eric and I aren't going to any institutional church building currently. Uh-huh. Um, Connie and us uh, sometimes are able to get together and kind of do like a little fellowship Bible study kind of meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enjoy that very much and everything, but my parents, I think, I'm not sure if Erica's parents have mentioned too much stuff. No, they're thinking Yeah, but my parents have been kind of lately not pestering, but, you know, that's the first word that came to mind, I guess. But, you know, just inquiring as to, you know, whether we're looking for a church and this and that and everything. And <laughs> basically, my dad's like, you know, Hebrews 10, 25, you know, um, I guess in his thinking, commands meeting at a church or whatnot. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I took a look at a few verses and all that, and it's like, well, this doesn't really definitively say that. And then um, uh, Pastor Dave, uh, Dave Schnitger, um, we were meeting with him in that house church for a while, and he actually mailed us um, an article from the Southwest Bible Ministry a while ago, uh, radio ministry, I should say, uh-huh. um, which actually had a very nice article from 2006 by this other guy just talking about, you know, like the New Testament home church and, you know, it isn't commanded in Scripture to have an institutional building or whatnot. And, you know, there's a big trend nowadays um, with people moving back to the home churches and all that. So it's an interesting just dialogue. And I don't know, I'm probably just going to have to tell Dad a little bit more definitively of what's going on and all that. Because at this point, I think it looks like um, we're just playing hooky and there's no per se per se a reason. I mean, he knows a little bit of why we left um, OBC, um, but I don't think they have the same perspective of that. And 
I forget how much detail they, um, they gave them about it, other than, you know, uh, just some of the basics, so. Mm-hmm. They're not insisting, you know, a specific one or whatnot, but it's yeah. something that we're talking about. A pretty big uh, uh, home uh, church movement out there. I mean, numerically, they're still small. Um, they have a pretty strong Internet uh, presence, but um, they actually have search engines where you can find, try to find a house church near you, but they don't work that well because house churches don't advertise themselves as a general rule because if they did, they wouldn't be a house church anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were kind of running into that problem with... Uh, our Liberty Bible Fellowship is what we had called it. Um, yeah. Like, you know, too much, too quickly with, you know, like, kind of start, he wanted to start advertising and all that, and it's like, well, we're still figuring out what's going on and all that. You know, we're all still, to some degree, one way or another, you know, just learning about what's really going on in the world and all that. So it's like, well, before we need to start getting people we have no idea about and all that, and I know you and Connie know, um, but, you know, we started getting infiltrators and people wanting FBI agents to come and all that. And it's like, mm-hmm. before we get all of that stuff happening, we should probably figure out and, you know, get the foundation set and all that. Or the foundation. Yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier. See, the foundation, there you go. See, let's focus on ourselves and not worry about all this stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, that has to do with what I was saying, too, is that um, um, I call it the institutionalized mindset because I talk about the institutionalized church. But, you know, so you're leaving the institutionalized church, but the problem is you're bringing an institutionalized mindset with you, you see. Right. And that's one of the problems that you ran into right away there with, with a pastor. Well, basically, he wasn't able to think out of the box. And yet, this is amazing. When I talk about a cultic mindset, check this out. We're saying, and I think you agree with me, that one of the significant problems developed because the pastor was not able to think out of the box. Would you agree with me on that? To some degree, definitely. And to his credit, he did admit that. He's like, I've never done this before, and you know, I'm probably bringing a lot of my preferences and stuff, and I'm trying to step back from it, and you know, Regardless of what happens, um, just being able to do this, um, I'm content and all that. But, I mean, it definitely, I mean, originally when we kind of wrote up, I mean, we wrote up like a statement of faith and, you know, like we were going to start trying to do some sort of government structure with like eventually, you know, if numbers had gotten big enough, like some sort of elder um, government structure and all that. And it's like, we're only at most like, you know, a dozen and a half people. Um, mm-hmm. We can do, you know, like, I guess, uh, you know, a Socratic seminar sort of circle discussion and something for quite a while instead of, you know, and then he wanted to watch a bunch of uh, Chuck Baldwin uh, sermons online. So it kind of went back to the whole just listening to one preacher. And we didn't really do a whole lot of discussing afterwards. Um, I think part of that was just because of schedules and everything, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see the influences and all that. It's just like, all right, we're trying to, you know, and talking about renting a meeting hall and all that. And it's like, well, we're trying to follow all sorts of different models. And he was really, I think, trying to emulate the whole Chuck Baldwin thing with renting a meeting uh, hall or meeting place and all that and, you know, growing it and everything. But... Uh 
I mean, it was a nice little venture. It was certainly different, um, but I guess perhaps not different enough to some degree. And then, obviously, God had different ideas with sending him to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, when I mentioned uh, not not being able to think out of a, a box sufficiently, I was only talking about the context of uh, that local church setting because um, he was unusual in that he was thinking outside of the box. That's what I was going to mention. Um, and that's why he got, um, well, basically excommunicated. If you're a pastor, uh, you're, you're, you're basically getting fired, you know, because you're you're on a payroll, you know, which is, now that's not in Scripture anywhere, okay? Um, the worker is wor- worthy of his uh, wages, you know? Right. But it's different uh, to have a paid clergy, you know, with retirement and uh, all that stuff and uh, insurance and you know, the whole thing, everything goes with it, you know. That's not in the Bible anymore. <clears throat> right. That goes back to the institutional system. So, I mean, he was between a rock and a hard place. Uh, yeah, he definitely was. Um, he he told us, um, you know, in meeting and just personally, you know, I feel like I've run out of options. They've prevented mm-hmm. me from being able to be a pastor anywhere in this town. I, I mean... You know, I'm applying to Home Depot and all that. The word got out about him. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, there was a little bit of um, subversion and stuff going on with that. Let's just say that one of the pastoral positions that was starting to look promising, uh, the leadership of his formal uh, former church uh, kind of shot it down from behind the scenes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was uh, certainly even more eye-opening than what we had already dealt with there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, this is the pastor that basically got fired for his views on 9-11. Right. And uh, so one of the reasons why I wanted to bring that up and focus on a little bit is because um, I said that his views weren't out of the box enough. He still retained that uh, institutional mindset. I'm saying that he still had problems with an institutional mindset. Okay, in other words, instead of going to a church scripture to get a biblical ecclesiology, you know, church practice, uh-huh. he's being influenced by Chuck Baldwin, okay? So he's got a problem with institutional mindset. But what does that tell you? Because he's obviously out of the box. He's not out of the box enough. But what does that tell you about the mindset of the people that uh, basically fired him? See, my point is, is that that is a cultic mindset. These people... Um, Definitely. are incapable of any significant uh, level of actually evaluating reality from a biblical view. Right. But they call themselves Christians. You know, because the government didn't approve of that view. And uh, we stand behind the government just like we stand behind the, the medical system. Mm-hmm. No matter what they do to us, we stand the behind the system. Mm-hmm. And we also stand behind what the government says uh, about uh, about war. Every war that we go off to, we support it. Stop and think about that. How many churches have not supported wars in the history of America? <clears throat> what does that tell you about the... It, are they led by the Spirit in that particular aspect? Obviously not. You know? Not any significant number of people. I mean, you always have your little your little yeah. pocket groups of exceptions that, you know, when you read the 
I guess the school history books and all that, it kind of makes them sound like oddball whack jobs. <laughs> yeah. The, the Quakers would be the most prominent example, and um, right. also some of the Seventh-day Adventist groups. Um, the Mormons are not identified as um, Christians. Yeah, well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't, they don't send their people off to war. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, they absolutely refuse having to do with it. And I actually believe that, that that's a psyop, too, you see, because I mean, I've talked about before how, well, those two religions are created from the ground up. There's no question about, about Illuminati, okay? Right. I mean, they're leaders. Joseph uh, Smith and Charles Taze Russell, I mean, these guys are, they were illuminists. There's plenty of evidence that that was true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I've seen enough of that to be con- totally convinced of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is they're they're putting truth into these groups mm-hmm. uh, to get people that are supposed to be evangelical, whatever the heck that is. I mean, I know what it's supposed to be, but people are confused, obviously, what that is. I guess it just means conservative. Um, to reject that. You know, well, that's what the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or the Seventh Day Adventists, or the or the Quakers. You know, because the the Quakers are generally considered to be kind of an aberrant group, not not a cult, so to speak. But uh, you know, they don't really have a the trusted right hand of fellowship. I mean, people are a little suspicious of them, you know, because they have kind of a mystical bent. I'm a little suspicious too, by the way, <laughs> because the, the Quakers, you know, they call themselves the Friends. Uh, they're not real good at, um, <clears throat> their strength is not a, a biblical-based faith, you know, it's, it's more often to subjective mysticism, so or, I definitely have problems with them. But it's, it's, it's funny how you see, you know, the truth outside of accepted Christianity, and I'm actually saying that's there by design, you know. And then also, you see this remarkable amount of control uh, within institutional Christianity, you know, Protestant uh, churches, yeah. and where we don't have a significant influential group that rejects um, St. Augustine's just war theory, because that's what it's based on. Yeah. Okay? And I've talked about before, there's three different positions on that. Now, the opposite is the pacifist view, which is what the Quakers would hold to. But see, there's this middle position that just doesn't get discussed, and that's called... Um, non-resistance, you know, where it's against going off and, um, you know, joining the military, stuff like that, but you can defend your own household if you're being invaded. So it's a middle position. In other words, you can spill a man's blood. Uh, just like you can rescue a uh, an animal on the Sabbath. It's because of the value of a life, you know, justifies that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's not what Christians believe. They, I mean, it's kind of funny. Some of them have kind of a disconnect. They hold to the just war theory, but they believe they can defend uh, their family, too. Well, that should affect your view of war, because um, when you go off in a war, um, I'm saying that it's murder. That's what I'm saying, okay? And there's a lot of things you could say about that, you know. Uh, I believe it was um, World War One, but um, there's a lot of evidence that, um, that people were not shooting, because there are a lot of Christians on both sides, you know. And eventually, the military figured out what was going on, and they had to uh, they start training people to uh, to kill more efficiently. 
because there was too many Christians on both sides, you know. But, I mean, what you're doing is that you're indiscriminately killing a Christian brother, and this is supposed to be okay, because um, we're told that um, that's what Augustine believes. And this is the problem, okay? Um, we don't live in a God-ordained theocracy. See, we're pilgrims in this diaspora period where God's people are scattered over the earth. However you view that, because at one time there was not Christianity in, in Australia or Indonesia or the deepest part of Africa, but, but now there is. So God's people have been scattered and uh, uh, they're, they're moving around. You know, things have changed. This is not like uh, the same as it was in the first century. So uh, people are still acting like the, the law of Moses is like partially intact. That's the kind of problem you run into when you go to local churches and they want you to tithe. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's based on the law of Moses. Like people are like picking and choosing out of the Old Testament law. They'll right. say, well, I don't believe that that applies to today. But then they will selectively choose things that they like to believe in. You know? Right. Yeah, the uh, the last sermon that I heard at my grandparents' church down in uh, San Antonio was about tithing. And uh-huh. uh, it was it was kind of difficult to sit through. It was a little uncomfortable just because, like, well, I mean, one, there wasn't too much scripture, and then, two, there was, like, you know, just stories and examples and stuff like that, you know. This yeah. one guy, you know, prayed to God, you know, God, if uh, if I make this much money, I'm going to give you this much, and if you somehow bless me with this much money, I'm going to give you this much or something like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. A lot of times, I mean, not all churches, of course, but a lot of churches out there, at least in my experience, are, you know, you hear more and more stories, more and more allegories and all that to illustrate points and less points in the first place. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think that the, the principle of the tithe is actually, um, I think it's viable. It's just uh, the problem comes down to, you, you know, the word means a tenth. Right. And uh, you know, whether each person is actually required to do that, otherwise you're committing a sin of uh, omission, you know. That's the part that I totally reject, you know. So, I mean, the principle is still there, you know, to some degree, anyway. So, you know, um, you have this problem with uh, the New Covenant where it does not have um, explicit laws about Christian uh, participation in government, you know, politics. It doesn't have anything specific about um, Christians getting involved in the military. Because, see, what we need, we, we know for a fact that the temple was destroyed. We know for a fact that um, that, that theocracy, now, theocracy is, you know, it's a, uh, it's basically a nation um, that's ordained by God and ruled by God to a hierarchy. Um, ideally, it would be a king in a hierarchical system under him for the priesthood. That's what they had, okay? Well, it's all gone. Okay, so what we need is clarity about the law and uh, how we should approach the world system uh, in the arena of uh, politics, government, 
and uh, military service. Guess what? We don't have those laws. Now, we actually believe, uh, Christians do, <clears throat> that the, you know, the epistles, the gospels, were written before the temple was destroyed. Right? And we all believe that, right? Except for the, um, you know, the apocalypse of, uh, of John. Right. Now, this is really interesting, okay? Because um, the temple was still intact at that time, so we would need laws for after that time, but we don't have them, you see? Right. And uh, that's why I, I believe that we're not under the New Covenant, that it's, it's future, and uh, this is actually the foundation for, for Christianity, is that we're under the New Covenant, and everybody believes that. And you have the, uh, the New Testament... Um, that's just the Latin word for covenant. And the reason we call it the New Testament is because it's based on that premise. You see, we don't, there's, you can make a, I hate to say this, but you can create a huge, huge list of laws that the Bible um, either says nothing about or is ambiguous, doesn't have clarity. So, as I like to say, the best thing that you could pull out of the hat is that we have lost books, because it's a fact that the Bible doesn't talk about these things, you know. Like it talked about, um, I've mentioned this several times, so you don't hear Christians discussing this at all, because they live in a different culture. But the Bible doesn't say anything about concubinage, you know, the subject of concubines, <clears throat> even though... The Bible says absolutely nothing negative about that. So what we need as Christians is clarity about that subject, which obviously overlaps into subject of polygamy, okay? And the Bible doesn't do either one. It doesn't talk about it. The only thing it says is that, um, is that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Well, that's right. actually affirming polygamy. Yeah, they try to use that as a proof text. See that cultic mindset again? That, that proves that um, you know polygamy is bad, and it's you know. Um, I I can't think of any scripture that says anything negative about polygamy off the top of my head. I um, anything. Affirming the existence of polygamy, but because there's a cultural bias, they think that they were against it in the first century. Evidence indicates otherwise, but there's a lot of examples of this. I mean, obvious ones like slavery. Because we're all against slavery, you know. But the Bible doesn't uh, condemn it anywhere. Paul just says, if you can become a free man, go ahead and do it, you know. He's actually affirming that system, which is antagonistic to our belief system. And yet, uh, we choose to go with culture uh, against the Bible. Now, see, um, if we're under the New Covenant, we need clarity about these laws. I'm saying it's self-evident that we don't have them. So that's why I agree with Judaism that the New Covenant is future, which it explicitly states in Jeremiah 31. And even if you believe that the New Covenant is intact right now, you have to get a big wake-up call when you go to Jeremiah 31 because you're seeing things there. Unless you're going to spiritualize the text, they simply haven't happened yet. Because, see... <clears throat> What the New Covenant has to do with is restoration. That's what it's all about. We haven't been restored yet, you see? And when when we are restored, when Israel is restored, however you define Israel, it doesn't really matter. This works in any system, okay? 
Then we're going to have to have new laws and new information. Unless you want to spiritualize the text. I talked about recently how in the book of Ezekiel, uh, the cloud of glory left the temple. I mean, Ezekiel saw it, you know. Um, but it hasn't come back yet. You know what I mean? So it, it, if you're going to execute Scripture properly, you want to have that cloud of glory coming back to a literal temple. Like pre-Mundalists believe. I'm not a pre-Mundalist, you see. Because that's bad exegesis, is to spiritualize the temple like preterists do and Amalinists and uh, most post millennialists you see, and also the historicist view and the idealist view of a revelation. But if it leaves a literal temple, guess what? It's coming back to a literal temple. And that means that we don't have the favor of God. So anyway, <clears throat> that temple has nothing to do with this Israel over there. That's a massive psychological operation, which needs to, needs to happen because they, they have a false eschatology. They're going to try to fool people. But the Bible teaches that there's an exodus, and it also teaches, and it's clear to me, that these festivals uh, will be restored, but they're actually, they're actually new festivals, but they will be based on the, um, on the exodus. Because, see, that's what the old... Um, the old festivals commemorated the Exodus, deliverance. Well, there's another Exodus coming. So it makes common sense that, um, that these restored festivals, which are actually new, would be based on that happening again because it's a, it's a greater event. You know what I mean? I'll get a scripture out here and read about that. <clears throat> and so, anyway, when you have a temple and the restoration of a priesthood, because, see, I believe the Levitical priesthood is going to be restored. A lot of Christians would have problems with it and say, well, that's all fulfilled through Christ. See? That explains why I say that I'm a biblical literalist. I'm not spiritualizing the text. It goes into detail in Jeremiah 33, where it talks about the house of David being restored in the Levitical priesthood. Um... It hasn't happened yet. But anyway, when these things do happen, you're going to have to have new information. See, we don't have enough information in Ezekiel 40 through 43 to actually construct that temple or to, um, you know, restore the Levitical priesthood or the house of David. See how we need new information? And that new information would, would, would have to do with guess what? the new covenant. You see that? So that's how you can tell that um, even if you really want to press the point that we're under the new, under the new covenant right now, uh, the best you could pull off is that we have, we have lost books, number one, that don't give us all the information that we need, and um, or, and, or um, we're only partially under it, and there's new information that's coming. But Christians are extremely uncomfortable with that concept because if you put uh, the term "extra biblical revelation" on Google, <laughs> and well, it's it's all a, you know, like the first page is pretty much all negative. You know, we don't believe in that because um, we have this concept where we have to defend Scripture, and that's viewed as an attack on Scripture. And uh, we we believe because we're told over and over again that we have everything for faith and practice in the Bible. 
So if you believe in this exodus, I guess we're supposed to go and leave on a journey with Bible in hand. And, uh, you know, do we turn to the right? Do we turn to the left? Do we go straight? Or do we stop and hang out for a while? But uh, it's all there in the Bible somewhere. As well as uh, everything we need to know about restoring Israel. Because, see, in Judaism, they acknowledge... that uh, there's all kinds of information that's not in the Bible. They acknowledge that there was all kinds of supplementary information that was given to, to Moses. You know what I mean? Because they're actually aware that there was not enough information uh, in the Torah to actually even build a temple or um, you know, initiate a priesthood or everything else. What does it say about the Sanhedrin? You know, okay, it says, okay, you can do this now. Well, how do we do it? You know what I mean? How do we, you know, the 70, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they assisted uh, Moses in ruling over the people. It doesn't tell us anything. Well, guess what? There's all kinds of things that it doesn't tell us because um, when people read the Scripture, they don't think about the things that it doesn't say unless a question springs up in your mind or someone else raises the issue. You just read through the scripture and you just focus on what it does say. There's all kinds of things that it doesn't say. My point in saying all this is that you've got the same situation in the future when Israel's restored, because Israel's going to be restored. Um, just like in the past, you have to have supplementary information. The same is true for the future. Now, I mean, if you buy into that at any level, you can see that we don't have that information. That's how we know that there has to be extra-biblical revelation. And when you say that word, we all have a lot of embedded programming, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, to make a little sense for that, you know, put it in context, there is more historical propaganda directed at um, Christians and Christianity um, than anything else in history. And this actually should be common sense. You know what I mean? So that's why when you say certain words like, um, you know, we're living in a new age or something like that, or extra biblical revelation, it doesn't sound right. Something's wrong there, you know? And it doesn't sound right to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's because um, if you look around, you'll see that that's, that's not the norm. You know? We don't believe in extra biblical revelation. So people get suspicious, you know? Let me read this passage here in Jeremiah. <clears throat> I've done this before. It says, however the days are coming, and verse 14, chapter 16, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when men will no longer say, quote, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. That's the first exodus, okay? And, you know, the, um, the Israelites, they had all these different sayings, you know. They were very oral culture. This has to do with traditions. We don't really have these anymore. We just have a few little words and stuff from the past. But it says, instead they will say, quote, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. That's the diaspora. So he's going to gather his people after he has scattered them. He says, for I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. Now, that's a good example of how you don't want to spiritualize that second event. Because we already know that the first event is literal. Everybody believes that, okay? But the problem is, is that 
Christians either believe <coughs> that this second event has to do with um, Israel being restored in 1947 and people being transported to uh, Palestine, or they spiritualize the text or just ignore it. You know what I mean? And there's a whole series of arguments that you can use that um, that can't possibly fulfill the biblical exodus, what's going on over there. It's basically fake. So you have to understand that, because you'll see this principle that basically every significant thing that has to do with biblical prophecy, Satan has a fake. You know what I mean? So if you just knew that one thing, then you start looking around for the fake. Okay, so where's the where's the fake exodus, you know? <laughs> where's the fake Israel, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's going to be a fake temple, you know what I mean? And there is, right in the line, you know? But people don't think that way. Nope. They don't think that. <laughs> They're being tricked. And uh, I actually believe that the um, the prophetic uh, end game, if you want to call it, is actually going to take place in America, which would really surprise people a lot because they're so focused on Israel, you know. But um, it's because we're in the diaspora. See, the church, they don't understand that, okay? And because it all has to do with one thing. We're in a period of probation. We don't have the status before God as a corporate people that we think we do. And you will find this consistently right down the line through redemptive history. Pretty much, you know, all along the way, Israel overestimated their status with God. You know what I mean? And basically, God's people pat themselves on the back and they compare themselves with the wicked world or the pagan nations and say, hey, we're a lot better than they are, you know. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, looking inward, stop focusing on the wicked world. Look at yourselves. You know what I mean? Just like going to church, you know, and focusing on somebody who's, well, that church secretary, boy, she's <laughs> she's got a vile tongue, you know, and always gossiping and stuff like that. You know, look at your own problem with looking at, at pornography when nobody's looking, you know, and then justifying that. Well, you know, I confess my sins, you know. Because <clears throat> we all got our problems, you know. Because we have a uh, sinful nature, you know. Uh, that's one side of the reality. The other side is, is that we're called to actually be perfect. That's what Scripture says. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> we're called to perfection. But um, obviously we can't accomplish that. God calls us to do um, the undoable because uh, to do anything else would be um, inconsistent with his nature so that explains why um, Paul wrote Timothy, and he says, do your best <laughs> to come to me. You know what I mean? God wouldn't say that. <laughs> he wouldn't say, do your best. We might think he would in modern Christian pop psychology, you know. But um, basically it has to do, as far as salvation, it's like um, he demands absolute perfection, and then we can't do that. And then so Christ's work on the cross, he, uh, he kind of fills in for us, so. Anyway, lots of problems with Christianity. I mean, I'm undercutting the New Covenant there, which, again, is the foundation for Christianity. So you're seeing it. It's kind of collapsing. You know, I believe that Christianity is an artificial construct, you know what I mean, the way it's been presented to us. But you know, just to put some uh, context to that whole thing, because that sounds pretty scary, you have to understand, and there's anybody out there saying this, 
but it needs to be said, and I keep repeating it, is that um, we really don't ha uh, have a lot of reliable information about uh, world history in general before the 14th century, because um, what we do know is actually filtered uh, through the Roman medieval Roman Catholic Church. So, I mean, if you feel more comfortable with that, you can kind of move it back a little bit. Well, how about 11th century, Dave? Okay, okay, okay whatever, you know. <clears throat> but see, that includes the history of the church. This is kind of scary, you know. But see, most Protestants don't trust Roman Catholic Church, you know what I mean? So that, that, that's something we can work with there, you know what I mean? I mean, the Protestants, uh, Reformers, they believe it was a satanic institution, they believe that the Antichrist was going to emerge from it and all those things. And, uh, you know, it's kind of been uh, toned down an awful lot. You know, I mean, most Protestants are not really Protestant because they're not protesting, but they don't trust the Roman Catholic Church. But the problem with the average Christian, he doesn't have a conspiratorial mindset, you see. I mean, they're not into the conspiracy stuff. Well, you don't even need to have that. I mean, what you need to understand is that you're trusting someone. You're always trusting someone. When it comes to information, unless you can access it directly. Well, we can't directly access information that far in a distant past. So we have to trust somebody. So Christians don't realize that they're actually trusting the medieval Catholic Church to tell them the truth about early, we'll call it post-apostolic Christianity. And there's actually no way to, to, to refute that. Because it's too simple, too self-evident, you know what I mean? But right. this is a real problem. I talked about the, the, the cultic mindsets, not just today, but all through the history of the church. I haven't heard anybody talk about this, nobody. And yet, it, when you point it out, you say, just point this, point that, and anybody can see it, unless they have some kind of emotional bias, they can't think straight. I just undercut the whole history of, of Christianity, potentially. We don't know for sure what happened. Then you introduce the Illuminati to the whole thing. And you got to remember now, nobody can prove the Illuminati didn't exist. In any given century, you can't do that. It's just, just, there's certain things that you can't prove, certain unknowns. They could be um, very uh, sophisticated and hide themselves very well. How do you know? So it really comes down to, if they did exist... Are they having some kind of a significant effect on the church? Let's take an example. You know, Christians believe in the dark ages, right? Yeah. Well, what would they believe in? So just imagine a scenario like that where you've got all these Christian serfs. They don't have any uh, education. They change the language. The people are ignorant. There's no schooling. It's illegal to travel. They could basically do whatever they want to do unless God intervenes. And once you figure out that in our day, which we think is a lot better than the Dark Ages, God is allowing uh, Christians to be killed through chemotherapy and vaccines and the lives of the children destroyed. And being sprayed at, at, uh, daily by uh, chemtrails as we're hit by all kinds of electromagnetic frequency weapons, God's allowing all this, then you can pretty much let your mind run wild for what may have been happening in the medieval era, um, the fact is we don't know. The Christians think that we're living in a better time. You know what I mean? 
the main thing is, is that we didn't have control and we didn't have protection. For a sheepfold that's wandering, described in Ezekiel 34, and there's no protective, there's no protective sheepfold. And uh, the Bible actually says in Ezekiel 34 that they have no shepherd. That, that's amazing. You know, so the average Christian is going, well, that must be Israel. You know what I mean? Um, however you uh, imagine that period, it's important to understand that those people are the people of God. And the Bible always describes the people of God who are people, um, regenerate people. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, you can tell that's the diaspora because it culminates with God giving them a shepherd. And it's this Davidic prince that we talk about. Now, the reason that's so important is because that helps you to see the historical period that it's talking about. Because it, it extends for a long time, and then it ends when they get this shepherd. See? But um, if you look at that period there in the text, I mean, everything is all screwed up. It doesn't say anything good about spiritual leaders. In fact, it actually calls them shepherds. Which is interesting because that's what the word pastor is. There's nothing good about them whatsoever. They're evil. We actually had a revelation. It didn't come from me. I think from several people that um, I forget exactly what it said, but basically it was that God rejects pastors. I don't mean that in absolute sense. But to try to put some context into the whole thing, it's not a biblical office. See, we've gotten so wishy-washy about truth and stuff like that that we just think we can do it our way. You know, but back in the um, the old covenant, everything had to be done with absolute precision, or God didn't approve it. We don't believe that anymore because we just believe that God will forgive us um, no matter what we do. We call it cheap grace, you know what I mean? What that does is leads it leads to uh, sloppiness, mediocrity, apathy, and inertia. That's exactly what we have in Christianity. You know, in Satanism, um, you see high efficiency, great devotion. Everything's done with absolute precision, despite what they may tell you, because there's propaganda out there. All oh, these groups are all fighting among themselves. That's that's a lie because. Um, that kind of thing doesn't go on because there's punishments. It all has to do move forward to accomplish a great end goal. That's not going to happen. It's all kinds of infighting. They will have deliberately uh, structured infighting. Um, if it's staged, you know, like one magician against another, I'm not talking about that. The infighting has to do with the Christian church. And I'm saying that it's happening largely because we have all these enemies that have infiltrated the Christian church, and they are posing as Christian leaders. And um, on a percentage basis, I would have to say that these are the people that we trust the most. You know, you can start with the 33rd degree Freemason Billy Graham, okay, and start working down from there. And basically what has happened is that because um, God is actually punishing us for the sins of our ancestors. That's why we got into this mess. That's why we're being uh, sprayed by chemtrails. Um, God has taken his protective hand away. This is what Christians need to know. We don't have the protection that we think we do. 
Um, that's why you can prove this by looking at all these different things that are going on that, I mean, once you figure it out, if you put the word chemtrail in Google, and your whole world is going to change. You know what I mean? So God's protective hand has been removed, and the Illuminati has the opportunity to flood the, the landscape, to flood the market with their infiltrators. They have the opportunity to do that. Do you think that they would uh, take advantage of them? You better believe it. So guess what? That's what happened. That's what happened. So if you walk in a Christian bookstore and you see this list of, all oh, these are top ten selling books. Well, that's all orchestrated, too, just like when you, um, <clears throat> you look at just by any poll that you're going to see. If there's any kind of poll, anything that has to do with statistics, I don't care if it has to do with world population. These people are not in the business of telling us the truth about anything. That's against their ethical belief system, which is the antithesis of um, you know, biblical law. So right. a sin is a virtue, and a virtue is a sin. And uh, telling a lie, is a, that's, that's a good thing. So the only time that they would tell the, law, uh, the truth, especially to the Christians would be to get them to uh, swallow this one, <clears throat> swallow that so they can tell them a bigger lie. Because you can't just, you know, speak nothing but lies across the board. We all know that. Actually, uh, everything is evolving. And so um, as devolution continues, um, you can get away with lying to the people more and more and more. Because back in the ancient world, because I believe that everything originated with the... Uh, you know, pristine truth from Adamic oral tradition. There are certain things you couldn't lie about. People would just laugh at you. <laughs> You're crazy. You know what I mean? Nobody believes that. Okay? So, <clears throat> I actually believe that a lot of this happened after these two great catastrophes, you know, with the flood and the first century cataclysm. Um, if you really know where to look, there was a lot of interesting things that happened after the flood. But, um, I mean, there was a time you know, 500 years ago where you could not lie to the people about certain things. You had to buy your time and keep working upon, you know, Christian society. But now um, they've got so many people installed. We've been trained basically to look at these people as experts and to put our trust in them. And uh, I'm telling you that they're on the opposite side. But stop and think about it. You know, if they had the opportunity to flood the market, do you think they would do it? Yeah, why not? If they could, you know, if God allowed them. I'm just saying that's what's happened. So, um, and we're, what we're doing is we're actually practicing something called, um, I had to give it a name, group revelation. And uh, I didn't seek these people out, but God keeps sending people to me that, have, that are very gifted. You know what I mean? And uh, you can get like three, four, five people together and throw a question out there, and they will actually hear a voice in their head and give a reply. And so um, if they get the same answer three, four, or five times, I'm going to assume it's from God, even though, you know, you're talking to a guy who's extremely skeptical about, guess what, <laughs> extra-biblical revelations in Christianity. I don't trust them. You know what I mean? Because my experience has shown me that most of the stuff is false. And most of the sign gifts 
in local churches are also false. Most of the tongue speaking is, is false. But as they say, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That, that's consistent with, with, you know, the times that we're living in. Because Christianity, it's the question, it's corrupt. I mean, Jesus and the apostles, they wouldn't have any problem acknowledging that late Second Temple Judaism was corrupt. It's actually a false religion. But how many Christians can actually refer to Christianity as a corrupt religion? And how many Christians can actually acknowledge that it's a false religion? You know? And there's easy ways to prove that it's false. Um, you have what's called orthopraxy. That has to do with correct practice as opposed to correct belief, which would be orthodoxy. And it's true that you can take any religion, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, you have to have certain correct practices. Otherwise, you're going to have to redefine what that religion is. And the reason is, is because um, you have to have the proper historical terminology so we can communicate effectively. If you want to change the practices, then... uh, you have to give it a different title, different terminology. That's called something else. But I'm telling you, no matter how corrupt Christianity gets, the Illuminati and mind-control media will continue to call it Christianity. You have to be aware of that, okay? We need new terminology, you see. The problem is that these institutions are not our institutions. They're actually created for us. And these institutions are not giving us proper, appropriate terminology. So that means we have to create our own terminology. That's exactly what I'm doing, you know what I mean? Now you got all these liberals running around. They don't believe that Jesus um, was resurrected. They don't believe he died on the cross. and uh, They don't believe in the second coming. They don't believe the, the manuscripts were originally, originally inspired. And they believe that you can get saved through different uh, religions and stuff like that, like you mentioned earlier, pluralism. If you ask these people, you know, well, are you a Christian? Said, oh yes, you know, I'm Christian. My family's always been Christian, you know. Well, you got to give these people some kind of different terms. So I call them cosmic Christians, you know. <clears throat> but they're not biblical Christians because their 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 belief system is not based on some kind of objective moral standard. Just kind of make it up as you go, and uh, this is my truth, and you have your truth. We're all just here to get along. But actually, they don't get along. They don't get along with um, conservative Christians. <laughs> you know what I'm They might get along better with a Buddhist. <clears throat> but um, everybody seems to have problems with conservative Christians. Today, so. Anyway, I didn't mean to rant so long. But, uh, that's thanks for good podcasting sometimes. A lot of things to think about, huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's more and more. Real quick, James, I introduced a whole series of ideas and concepts that are foreign to Christianity. And you can see that it's self-evident that they need to be dealt with. Okay? And no one's even talking about them. That's a fact. A lot of times you can see that uh, just by hearing these concepts. You go, whoa. Okay, I can see that's important, but nobody's talking about it. And what's that telling us over and over again is that Christians do have a cultic mindset. I don't like the word cult, okay? So I don't, uh, I, I think that word is a time bomb from 
Illuminati think tanks, you know, to create division. It's not a biblical word. You have the word sect. And it's, it's there to keep us divided and, uh, and fearful about certain groups or persons, you know what I mean? But um, a cultic mindset is something that a person can't think uh, independently of the system. And this is relatively easy to prove. This is a massive problem. So um, I like to say that um, in the cult of society, which this is this overarching societal cult, um, our quote-unquote educational system, it, it doesn't have any significant differences from the Watchtower Bible and Trap Society. I've mentioned that enough times. I won't go into it now. You probably heard me talk about that. Well, the thing is, is with, um, with Christianity, it's actually a product, a product of the cult of society. And how do we know that? Well, <clears throat> when you get quote-unquote saved, you still have that cultic mindset. You see, what I talked about in a number of podcasts is that the society never does teach you how to think, whether you go to Westminster Seminary or Ivy League school. All it does is um, is tell you that you need to um, efficiently store information and then spit it back, and you're rewarded for that or you're punished if you don't do it. They call that a wrong answer. Right. That's all it is. Well, that is self-evidently a cultic system. But here's what's more important, okay? Here's the big red flag. You don't hear anyone talking about this. You'll see these different movies like Logan's Run, like a negative dystopia in the future. Logan's Run is an old film from the late 70s. Lisa would probably be familiar with it. Oh, yeah. They had Sarah Fawcett in there. Well, the whole society is on mind control. And they can't, they can't question things because that's all they know. You see, we were actually born into the cult of society. It's all we know. It's like being born into the Truman Show. You know, you don't question things because you don't think there's any alternative reality. Right. You just believe what you're told. Well, what we're being told is one lie after another. Uh, you can take, take a couple decades of research. Um, I don't know if you can figure it all out before you die, but basically um, they're lying to us across the board about everything out there that's significant. At the very least, they'll put a spin on it. So nothing is really as it appears to be. But um, basically, our, our culture is a product of one single um, deception, hoax, and scam, one after another. I don't care if it's you know the college loan scam or uh, you're buying insurance scam. It's everything. And the reason that people don't know this is because they haven't investigated. And the other people who don't believe it, they realize that some of it is a scam. They don't realize there's a whole lot more to come. So, see, I've been down the road um, where other people haven't gone because my whole life was oriented around internalizing information and trying to figure out what's real. <laughs> you know what I mean? And... Uh, I didn't have a wife. I didn't have children. I didn't have, like, a regular job. I didn't have, like, regular responsibilities. And so the huge factor is time. It takes a lot of time. you got to somehow pull this off before you die. Because uh, I, I actually maintain that you can't become truly wise unless you live a long life, and our lives are too short. 
the reason is because we're thinking of a post-flood uh, mentality. You know what I mean? Our redemptive history extends before the flood. And if you could live for like, you know, just 400 years, just think how wise you would become just based on one thing alone, just um, experiential wisdom. Now, you, you'll see how stupid, you know, teenagers are. And as you grow older, it's like getting your head hit over and over again. Uh, that was stupid. That's was stupid. Don't do that again. That hurts. You know what I mean? It's like a child putting their hand in a hot burner. You know, okay, that was dumb. I'm not going to do that again. Eventually, you start to figure it out. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Hopefully. <laughs> We've got a lot of the adult uh, children in our society who um, are not actually equipped to even be married. That's why we have all these problems with marriages. And they never grow up, okay? But just think about how wise you could become if you could live to be 400 years, you know, and just internalizing all the information. Well, that's not happening. So that's one of the reasons why people are, are just not very intelligent. In fact, in our culture also, there's no emphasis on, you know, becoming wise. It's more focused on external things, things that are pleasurable, things that are uh, trivial, and uh, that kind of thing, you know. So we're not a wise people, and we're not seeking wisdom, and we actually do not have a desire. That's the key word. We don't have a desire for wisdom or knowledge. It's not happening. But we have uh, a lot of embedded programming that is designed to convince you that um, it's what you know is sufficient. You're doing okay. You know what I mean? And uh, the supplementary programming is that um, if you need to know anything else, trust an expert. They've got all the experts waiting for us, you see. That's a cultic system. You know, in a cultic system, uh, they pat you on the shoulder and go, you know, you've you got it all figured out. Well, you've got to worry about all these other people out here that don't know what you know. It feeds the ego. Like if you're Jehovah's Witness, you know, you know the truth. The rest of the world is blind. Well, Christians have that mentality, too. You know, that's not entirely wrong, because if you, if you do have the truth, then that's, that's correct. And like Jesus' disciples, you know. The problem with that whole setting right there, with our Western modern approach, is that Jesus would be a, a cult leader, and the disciples would be blinded cult followers, because they were believing and hanging off every word that he said. See, we don't trust that. We don't do that here. It really has to do with the integrity of the person and the information. But that's the thing. See, we don't have an authoritative voice to you in the first century. So it is kind of spooky. The reason is, we're all confused. That's what Babylon means. Confusion. <laughs> there you go. 